Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. In London, this is The Economist, with tasting menu, a selection of the most delectable morsels from this week's coverage. I'm Lane Green, the deputy books editor and language columnist, and on our menu this week we have a new way to end marriage, a badly botched currency reform in India, and the rise of Airbnb for dogs. But first, the mighty dollar was our cover line this week. The dollar has seen a sharp rise against both its peers and against emerging market currencies. But, as our leader argued, burgeoning buying power for the greenback should not be seen as good news. Zippier growth in the world's largest economy sounds like something to welcome. A widely cited precedent is Ronald Reagan's first term as president, a time of widening budget deficits and high interest rates, during which the dollar surged. That episode caused trouble abroad, and this time could be more complicated still. Although America's economy makes up a smaller share of the world economy, global financial and credit markets have exploded in size. The greenback has become more pivotal. That makes a stronger dollar more dangerous for the world and for America. So, who's to blame? The dollar has been gradually gaining strength for years. But the prompt for this latest surge is the prospect of a shift in the economic policy mix in America. The weight of investors' money has bet that Mr Trump will cut taxes and spend more public funds on fixing America's crumbling infrastructure. As a result, the surging dollar could hamstring emerging markets. As the greenback rises, borrowers husband cash to service the increasing cost of their own debts. As capital flows out, asset prices fall. The upshot is that credit conditions in lots of places outside America are bound ever more tightly to the fortunes of the dollar. But there are dangers in a stronger dollar for America too. The trade deficit will widen as a strong currency squeezes exports and sucks in imports. In the Reagan era, a soaring deficit stoked protectionism. If Mr Trump succumbs to his protectionist instincts, the consequences would be disastrous for all. And it may soon be a question of when, not if, market optimism gives way to reality. Stock markets in America have rallied on the prospect of stronger growth. They are being too cavalier. The global economy is weak and the dollar's muscle will enfeeble it further. As if we didn't have enough to worry about already. But it's time to go from the rampaging dollar to the disappearing rupee as we check in on an item in our Asia section where Prime Minister Narendra Modi's abrupt decision to void 86% of the country's currency has left many of India's 1.3 billion people in the lurch. The Reserve Bank of India, or RBI, the central bank, has been unable to print money anywhere near fast enough to replace the $207 billion in 500 and 1,000 rupee notes that were outlawed overnight on November 8th. Unless India's four existing money presses can be speeded up, or bills quickly imported, 
Experts reckon it could take five or six months before the money removed from circulation is fully replaced. The effect? Chaos. For unexplained reasons, the RBI has supplied almost no new cash at all to India's hundreds of smaller rural cooperative banks or to its 93,000 agricultural credit unions, so keeping millions of farmers from deposits that total some $46 billion. Starved of cash, India's rural economy is seizing up. The unintended consequences have been vast. But, our article argued, the sudden reform has not even accomplished its stated objective. Perhaps more embarrassingly for Mr Modi's government, there are few signs that its harsh economic medicine is achieving the declared goal of flushing out vast hordes of undeclared wealth or black money. Mr Modi has kept his cool through the crisis so far, and he profits politically from a divided opposition. But his strong position rests precariously on his ability to rapidly get more money into circulation. Some analysts in Delhi predict that once enough cash is printed to get the economy moving again, Mr Modi's government may simply insert cash into some bank accounts, such as those created under a government programme to bring banking to the poor, and declare this to be revenue from the black money sweep. But if more cash does not soon appear, Mr Modi's future may look very different. Of course, if India does decide that Mr Modi is not for them, it could be a messy divorce. And divorce is the topic of an article in our U.S. section this week, which explored a new wave of startups dedicated to greasing the wheels of separation. Most of the employees at the Centre for Out-of-Court Divorce in Denver are trained in mediation or social work, but they also pay close attention to interior design. It has three exits in case tensions flare and the separating partners need personal space. They have been used a few times since 2013, when the centre began helping to dissolve marriages, says Susan Carparelli, the centre's executive director, but not many. As our article pointed out, divorce in America is currently exhausting and expensive. A survey by NOLO, a legal publisher, suggests the average American couple spends $15,000 and 10.7 months untying the knot. The legal system often adds insult to cost and time. Only a handful of divorce cases are actually settled in court, but traditional litigation inherently promotes the idea that the couple's interests are at odds. At the Centre for Out-of-Court Divorce, a more collaborative approach is preferred. For a flat fee of $4,500, partners who wish to uncouple are provided with a customised package of mediation, counselling and assistance with financial planning and custody schedules. Such mutual agreements could be set to outpace their adversarial alternative. Ms Carparelli recognises that the service will not be right for all couples. Where there is abuse or when the couple has a lot of trouble communicating, litigation may be more appropriate. But for a large share of separating couples, it may well be the future, like introducing a cell phone into a world of landlines. Of course, it could really ruin a Kramer versus Kramer remake too. But it's time to go from anxious separations to separation anxiety, as an article in our business section investigated a new service that aims to ease the pain of leaving your pet behind. In big cities such as San Francisco and Seattle, owned dogs outnumber children. Now a pack of startups has sniffed a fresh opportunity. Much as Airbnb has offered travellers an alternative to staying in a hotel, two firms, Rover and Dog Vacay, 
want to give pet owners an alternative to kennels when away from home. The service is simple. Customers search for a nearby sitter and pay for their dog to stay in that person's home. The cost is around thirty dollars a night, with the majority of that going to the sitter and around a fifth to the company. Much less than you would spend to check your dog into a kennel. The other big selling point is that pets, by and large, receive better treatment. As consumers, dog owners, like dogs, are valued for their loyalty. That has helped Dog Vacay and Rover attract a lot of venture capital money, around one hundred and forty million dollars between them. However, these budding moguls for mangy mutts may need to put their international ambitions on pause. But firms that connect pets with hosts will face daunting competition as they try to go global. And unlike Airbnb, which pulls in customers thanks to its presence in lots of markets that people want to travel to. The network effect for services like Dog Vacay is local, but then no one ever said it was easy to be top dog. But it turns out frequent flyers may have more pressing concerns than where to leave their dog, as we turn to an article in our science section that suggests that a hidden threat could be lurking in the clouds. Drinking too much and eating too much are both good ways of getting liver cancer, but there is a third. The disrupted circadian rhythms caused by working shifts or crossing time zones also seem to induce the disease. Precisely how and why meddling with day and night cycles has such a dire effect on the liver remains an enigma. But a study just published in Cancer Cell by Loning Fu and David Moore at the Baylor College of Medicine in Texas sheds some light on the matter. According to their research, disrupting our sleep patterns could cause our livers to produce too much bile acid, which has disastrous consequences in mice. They found that the livers of animals on the disrupted schedule had accumulated fat and showed evidence of damage. In particular, they overproduced bile acid. Just under nine percent of the cycle disrupted mice they discovered had developed liver cancer. None of the controlled mice had done so. Luckily, the mice did not die in vain. Two genes, CAR and FXR, have been identified as playing crucial roles in the process. Treatments that target them could, once again, make the sky safe for your liver. On the basis of these results, Dr. Fu and Dr. Moore suggest that developing either a drug that blocks the activity of CAR to stop cell proliferation, or one that activates FXR to decrease bile acid production. Could save shift workers and frequent flyers from the threat of liver cancer. Phew! Now it's time to go from airplanes to airwaves as we look back on some of the week's highlights from Economist Radio. Our Money Talks program tackled the thorny questions facing the golf industry in Japan. I think that it also has a bit of an image problem because the corporate、uh, entertainment type of golf was so popular. A few decades ago, I think the young now tend to shy away from something that's seen as a little bit stuffy and a, of a different era. Babbage got to grips with a bomb that can see.、Uh, this is basically having machines that navigate in exactly the same way as humans do. So it looks around, it sees some landmarks, it compares those with it, what it has in its memory, and it can then figure out where it is from that. The Economist asks. Delved into the introduction of coeducation to elite universities, 
what began to change by the end of the decade is that high school girls had the chance to think about places like Princeton and Yale, and that changed everything in terms of the opportunities available. And the week ahead examined the fallout from the death of Fidel Castro. I think a lot of people in Cuba want change. It's true that there's a, uh, that there are powerful forces stacked against it, but the demand for change is strong. Now, finally, we go from Economist Radio to Economic Revolution as a review in our Books and Arts section assessed a bold new theory. A Culture of Growth, The Origins of the Modern Economy by Joel McCure. In the year 1000, the average person in Western Europe was slightly poorer than their counterparts in China or India. By 1900, things were very different. Western Europe was five times richer. Explaining the reasons behind this great divergence has occupied many an economic historian. In a new book, Joel Mercure of Northwestern University offers his own take. The book's approach is, for an economic history, a little unconventional. The book contains few numbers, let alone regressions. This is because Mr. Mercure focuses on culture, something not easily quantified. To structure his argument, Mr. McCure speaks of a market for ideas, a system in which people try to persuade an audience of the correctness of their beliefs. Like any market, it can fail, and for most of history it did. That is, of course, until it didn't. Then, almost by accident, Europe stumbled into an arrangement whereby the market for ideas flourished. The Royal Society, a club for scientific exchange founded in London in 1660, started a journal in which everyone from Christopher Wren to Robert Boyle battled over ideas. There were no sacred cows. With this sort of science, useful, wealth-creating things were invented. The book's approach does have its downsides. Those familiar with the historiography will have their own grumbles. Mr. McCure's theory is, ironically, untestable. When he asserts that Bacon was of unique importance to the development of the West, it is impossible to prove otherwise. Nevertheless, the sheer elegance of Mr. McCure's theory, however, has much to commend it. Mr. McCure has not fully explained the great divergence, but he has offered some tantalizing insights. As, I hope, has this tantalizing tasting menu. Don't forget to send any complaints or compliments to the chef to radio at economist.com or by tweeting us at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.